Good morning. My name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to our worship gathering, whether you are a first-time guest or you call the Oaks Church home. Uh, if you are you know, a guest of ours and you've never visited our Connect table in the back as you exit, uh, I want to encourage you to stop by there today, meet some of our church members, uh, myself and some of our other pastors will be in the back of the room. And we have a gift for you. We would love to just thank you for being here by giving you a guest gift bag. Now, if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Acts chapter 6. And you're thinking, well, I thought we were going to be in Titus today. Well, I'll explain myself in a moment, uh, but we're continuing our series called The Trellis. And yet we're going to kind of uh, briefly deviate from the book of Titus and look at Acts chapter 6. And then we're going to look at 1 Timothy 3 and then Mark 10, the passage that Ian just read. Now, as we've been working through the series of, uh, uh, that we've called the trellis through the book of Titus, we have talked uh, about this illustration of the trellis. Now, if you're familiar with, you know, growing plants or, you know, maybe you've got flowers in your yard or uh, you've even seen a, a vine that kind of grows up the side of the building, then you know what a trellis does. Uh, a trellis is designed as a framework that supports the health and growth of a vine or whatever plant is kind of growing up through that structure. Now, it's important for us to recognize that the trellis is not what grows the plant. The plant grows organically as it receives sunlight and water and fertilizer. It naturally grows. And yet you'll find that if a plant is designed to climb up something, that the trellis is a necessary structure for the health and growth of that plant. Well, whenever we've been looking at the book of Titus, uh, we've recognized along the way that God has created a, a necessary framework for the Christian life, for your health and growth in your walk with Jesus, in your relationship with the Lord. Uh, that trellis is the church. God's good design for his people to be a part of a local church body uh, that has an organizational structure for your spiritual growth and health. Um, I've often heard the phrase that organized is not the enemy of organic, disorganized is. And I think sometimes maybe we think, well, uh, we don't really want to talk about church membership or, you know, going through a starting point class where you learn the core doctrines of a church. Uh, we shouldn't really worry about uh, church leadership and, you know, how authority works or who's teaching all that kind of stuff. We just, we just want to be organic, right? Because uh, sometimes that can sound more spiritually mature. And at the same time, we recognize that organization is a part of God's good design. He's the God who brings order out of chaos. And so this is not something that stifles our growth, but actually leads to it. And so we want to submit to God's wisdom as we hear from God's word, because we know that God is good and he has designed the trellis for the growth of us as a corporate family, uh, but also for the good of each of us individually. So we're just kind of looking at that framework as we go through this series that is called the trellis. Now, week one, we looked at uh, just kind of seven essentials or fruits of the Christian life so that you could ask yourself, am I showing evidence that I'm connected to the vine who is Christ? Am I bearing fruit as a follower of Jesus? Then the next week, we looked at uh, the importance of teaching God's word and having uh, pastors and leaders that are able to model Christ-likeness. Last week, we uh, looked at the danger of false doctrine, how to avoid false doctrine and how to hold fast to the truth. Well, you might, might remember that two weeks ago, whenever I talked about the office of elder or pastor, we use those terms interchangeably throughout scripture and even in the life of our own church. As I talked about the office of elder, I mentioned that there are two official offices in the church. There is the office of elder and there's also the office of deacon. Now, the interesting thing is whenever you're going through the book of Titus, uh, Paul doesn't write about the office of deacon. And yet, I felt like it was important for us to talk about what deacons are, what deacons do, and how deacons model service for the entire church. Uh, one of my goals in preaching through this series called The Trellis and looking at some of these, you know, cultural distinctives of our church that we take from Scripture is really to prepare our church family 
throughout the summer to be ready to move into the new building that we have purchased, to be ready to move into a new neighborhood and kind of see one another as a part of this core group that is going to be moving from this neighborhood into another neighborhood five minutes down the road. And for us to kind of see ourselves as the core group of planting the oaks again in this next chapter of the life of our church. And for that reason, I thought, well, it's important for us to talk briefly about who a deacon is, what a deacon is, where this word came from. And so that's why we're briefly kind of sidestepping from Titus for a moment, jumping around into Acts, 1 Timothy, Mark 10, and then we'll be right back into Titus as scheduled next week. So hopefully that doesn't throw you off too bad. Now, here's a few reasons that I think that this sermon might serve you well, might be helpful for you. Um, first, because we recently installed deacons as a church. Uh, so Ian, who just read scripture, he is our deacon of community. My wife, Abby, who leads worship, she is the deaconess of worship and media. We have uh, deacons in our church serving in setup ministry or over Oaks Kids and family ministry. We have various deacons for benevolence and member care. We recently installed deacons in our church while we've had elders for a long time. And, and so it's important for those who are now serving in this capacity to know the role that God has called them into and for you to know what, what's expected of a deacon. What does it mean for us uh, to be a congregation that values the role of deacon? Because my guess is you've probably never heard a sermon devoted to the topic of deacons, and yet you might be familiar with that word. The second reason that I think this sermon will be helpful for you is because the official role of a deacon in a church is the unofficial ministry of every church member in a church. So our deacons are assigned to ministry specific areas, like I just said, uh, and yet our deacons have a position of service in the church that should be the posture of every person in our church. Right? So while they might have a specific ministry position in the church of service, we should all have the posture of service in our church. And so as we focus on the role of deacon, we can kind of zoom out and see, wow, uh, God has equipped each and every one of us to serve one another. And as a part of a church body, you get to walk in the works that God has ordained beforehand as Ephesians 2.10 has said, so that you can do the work of ministry. Ephesians 4, 12 through 13 actually gives the pastor a job description that sounds like this, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So as a pastor, my primary job is not just to do ministry in the church, but actually to equip the body of Christ to minister to one another and to live on mission in the world around us. Uh, and, and so for that reason, I, I think that this sermon might be helpful for you. Uh, we had a member meeting this morning, and one of my favorite things to do in our member meeting is to give away a small token of appreciation called the golden acorn. Now, to you, that might not sound like much, probably because it's not. Uh, it is a small spray-painted golden acorn. And yet, what that tiny acorn signifies is that God has gifted people in our church to recognize needs in our church, to meet those needs. And the Lord is glorified through it and our church is built up through it. Now, we're a church that models Christ-like service to one another. And that leads to the final reason that I think this sermon might be helpful for you and perhaps the most important one. Serving can be exhausting, can't it? You know that, I'm not telling you anything that is new. Serving can be exhausting. And that's serving people in the church, maybe in a, a volunteer role that you get a planning center notification for. But that's, that's the case when you are serving one another anywhere. This can be serving your spouse, serving your children whenever they wake up in the middle of the night and they cry out your name and you hear it over the monitor. Ser serving can be exhausting. Serving your roommates whenever there's dirty dishes in the sink, again, whenever you've already had that discussion at the house meeting once again, you're like, okay, it's another opportunity to serve. Being the one at the office, in the classroom, the one at the job site that is willing to sacrifice for others is difficult. Maybe some of you serve in a parachurch ministry like Young Life, Crew, or InterVarsity, and it demands a lot of energy from you. 
Serving can be difficult because it often goes unnoticed, or at at the very least, it seems to be underappreciated by those around you. Sometimes serving can be difficult, and this is perhaps uh, a hard one. It's difficult because our input to a specific ministry or relationship rarely matches the, the outcome, the result that we expect to see, and we can grow weary in our well-doing as Paul cautions us not to in the book of Galatians. Sometimes serving kind of places a mirror over our own heart. Serving becomes difficult because it starves our idols of the attention that they desire. Think about that for a moment. Nothing will threaten your comfort your control over a situation or another person, nothing threatens your ease more than living a life that is committed to Christ-like service of one another. And so for that reason, our serving must be motivated by eyes that are fixed on Jesus. He is our savior. And yet he saved us by becoming a servant for us, that he saved us by serving us. So we don't, we don't serve to gain things from other people. Uh, we don't serve to be recognized. We don't serve to be impressive. We don't serve to pay God back. No, we serve others because Christ saved us. And that's going to be the single statement that defines this entire message that we serve others because Christ saved us. Now, with that being the summary statement, we are going to look at four truths that motivate service. Four truths that motivate service. And so this will be for the deacon in the official position that is serving in a specific ministry. This will also be for the husband who is seeking to serve his spouse, for the parent that is seeking to serve their child, for the roommate that is seeking to serve their friends. Let's look briefly at Acts 6, 1 through 7. And the first motivation that we will see is that serving solves problems and protects the church. Serving solves problems and protects the church. I think that it is easy for us to consider the early church and believe that the early church in the book of Acts never had a single problem. Ever heard somebody talk like that? Like, oh man, if we could just get back to the book of Acts when everything was absolutely perfect. And you, you begin to wonder like, has this person read the book of Acts? Like, There are these people named Ananias and Sapphira, and they're like not the best example of, you know, church members in the early church. But I mean, there's reason to think that whenever we're we're beginning the book of Acts, because Peter preaches the first sermon and 3,000 people are saved. Uh, You know, that's, that's amazing that God does that. We see that people are selling their possessions just to meet one another's needs, to care for one another. The summary statement in Acts 2.42 is literally the church that we have all dreamed of being a part of. Every single person with one mind is devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're breaking bread in one another's homes. They're praying together. They're making sure that one another's needs are met. And above all else, there are people that are placing their faith in Christ every single day, turning away from idols to acknowledge Christ as Savior. And I think if we just stopped there in the book of Acts, we'd be tempted to believe that the early church never struggled with conflict, they never dealt with sin, there was never any disagreement. But thankfully, as you continue to read the book of Acts, you find that the early church is both relatable and realistic. In Acts 6, Luke, the author, tells a story about a problem that almost divided the early church. And then he's going to describe the solution for that problem specifically people that serve one another, the office of deacon, but ultimately a heart of service. So if you have your Bible, let's look at Acts chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. God's Word says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith." Now, I'll say if this subject in particular interests you a lot and you're like, I would love to read an entire book about deacons, there's a really great book written by a guy named Matt Smethurst called Deacons. I highly encourage you to pick it up because I'm only going to be able to cover a little bit here. But as we walk through this passage, I want to make a few observations about this text. First, look at what book ends this passage. Right? The number of disciples is increasing greatly. And then in verse 7, you see once again that there are many coming to faith in Christ, and even some of the priests are beginning to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, we shouldn't take that for granted. Uh, what we find here is that because this issue, this complaint is handled in a way that restores unity in the church, that displays Christ-like love for one another, that the mission of God continues we see that unity is an essential component of not being distracted by conflict, but continuing to focus on what is primary in the life of our church, and that is the worship of Jesus and the declaration to those who don't know him that he saves. Now let's consider the details here in verse 1. There was a complaint that came up by the Hellenists. Now you might have a, a small footnote in your Bible, the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews, and so uh, they practiced Judaism, and yet they wouldn't have spoken Aramaic like most of the Hebrew Jews. Uh, the Hebrew Jews would have been the majority population. Uh, the Hellenists were most likely those who came to worship on the day of Pentecost, uh, and that's whenever, you know, the Holy Spirit indwelled believers, they believed the gospel, and now you kind of have this very ethnically diverse, culturally diverse group of people worshiping together and making up the body of Christ. Now, this is a beautiful thing, but it also led to an issue. Uh, there was most likely a language barrier. There were, you know, the just different issues that led to the unintentional neglect of the Hellenist widows. What took place is everybody was selling their possession and they wanted to make sure that people who could not provide for themselves were provided for. And so there was this daily distribution. Uh, now, it, we also have to understand that in the first century, if you were a widow who was formerly uh, you know, practicing Judaism and then you became a Christian, you were in a very vulnerable position. Uh, because now you would no longer receive assistance from the synagogue as you would before. Uh, you would not have a husband to provide for you. And if you didn't have children, then, then really you would have no means of family to take care of you. And, and so, you know, this isn't just a couple people that are complaining because they didn't get a free lunch. This is a very serious issue because uh, they could starve, they, you know, their health could suffer if they were overlooked and neglected. And so here we see that this complaint arose by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because they were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now we're going to see the way that the disciples handle this issue, the apostles. Uh, they don't simply say, hey, look at everything that God is doing, right? Look at all the people that are coming to faith in Christ. Look at the way that people are responding to the preaching of the word. Look at the way that the gospel is going forward. Don't bother us with small issues like this. No, they take this complaint seriously with great pastoral care because they are like gentle shepherds modeling the chief shepherd who is Jesus our Lord. And so they consider the needs of others. They pause to seek a solution. And, and what we're told here is that the 12 in verse 2 summoned the full number of the disciples. Now, this in itself would have been a logistical challenge. Because if you do kind of the attendance math, the, the number of conversions that has taken place in Acts chapters one through six, you will realize that there are roughly 8,000 members of the early church during this time. And so here they summoned the full number together to reach a solution so that they can care for, for the most vulnerable people among them. 
And they say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, this is important. Uh, John Stott uh, actually makes the observation that Ananias and Sapphira were a part of Satan's plan to try to pull the early church away from the mission of God through deceit, right? They lied. Uh, you know, this is a moment that perhaps the integrity of the church could, could be corrupted by these that were, you know, lying against uh, the church. That didn't work. Well, well, maybe persecution, right? Persecution came, and yet we see that even in the midst of persecution, the church grows. And so here in Acts 6, it seems that Satan's tactic to pull the church away from the mission of God is distraction from within. There is conflict and disunity. There could be some kind of unresolved tension among church members that would take their focus off the Lord, off proclaiming His name. And I think this is good for us to recognize that Satan's tactics have not changed. We are in a, a unique position as a church, aren't we? We've just made the biggest purchase we've ever made. We're trying to get into a building as fast as we can. We're growing rapidly and trying to help new people feel welcome as a part of this church family, but also to consider the needs of everyone that is currently here. Uh, the way that our elders are seeking to lead uh, is in, in ways that we've never had to, to lead before. We're facing new challenges. We're multiplying missional community groups. And you're saying, oh, I want to see this person every single week. But I also know that if we don't plant another MC, then uh, perhaps we won't be able to disciple and care for new people like we would want to. There are a lot of tensions, right? And yet this is, this is a great reminder that as the apostles would say here, we need to fix our eyes on the teaching of God's word and of prayer. We need to be committed to serve one another because there are many great distractions that are worthy of our attention as problems that could potentially harm the church. And yet our main focus needs to be on Christ and his mission. And so the desire of the early church was to both meet tangible needs as they arise recognizing this was a big issue, but also to prioritize the teaching of the word. And this is where we see the office of deacon come about. Now, you won't see uh, the, you know, the office of deacon used in that particular way. Uh, the verbs are used here, that they serve tables, they serve one another. Um, and that's literally, it's a transliteration of diakonos um, or deaconing where we get our word deacon. It simply means to serve one another. And so as we look at this passage, we see that these men are appointed. That is where we find this passage as the origin of the office of deacon. So the whole, the whole church comes together. Uh, they hear this idea of selecting those that would devote themselves to serving the tables and meeting this need among them. They say this is a good thing. Verse 5 says that what the apostles said pleased the whole gathering, and then they chose these seven men. Now, now even that informs us as to how we make decisions for specific offices in the church, right? Because whenever we felt the need as elders to add deacons into our church body, uh, we presented candidates. Our whole congregation voted together on who those individuals would be, so that this would be a decision that is not just kind of made from the top down in our leadership, but that would be made by our congregation together, that the elders and the deacons would work together as a team, and that we would honor the Lord in the way that we establish this office of deacon. Now, it's interesting to me that in this passage, each one of these men is named. And I think that happens for a few reasons. First, look at who is named among them. Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Well, Stephen's going to resurface in the book of Acts as the first martyr of the church. He's going to give his life for his faith and ultimately for the Lord. Next, we see Philip. 
Well, it's the same Philip that we will also know, not just as Philip the deacon, but Philip the evangelist, who will share the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. These deacons are models of faithfulness. Not only that, I also believe that the deacons were specifically named because if you look at each of their names, you will notice that these are not Hebrew names. In a congregation that was majority Hebrew, they selected the Greek-speaking Hellenists to address the issue that took place among the Hellenist widows. This is the reason that in our church, we have deacons that are serving from every life stage and uh, with different backgrounds, both in their vocation or their ethnicity or their culture or the things that they care about or the different gifts that they have. Because we want to be a church that prioritizes the care for all people. And one of the ways that we can best show that the gospel is good news for all people is by having that represented among our deacons. And one final observation on this passage is that the deacons are not given a specific job description, right? They're not told exactly what to do. Uh, and and it's, this is interesting because the, you know, they've got this very uh, present issue, right? There are people that are being overlooked. And you think that the apostles would say, okay, well, uh, you know, here are all of the names of these widows. Here's the time that the food is being distributed each day. And, and we don't know. Like maybe, maybe there was some sort of instruction like that. But really it's, hey, you've been called to this office. You've been gifted for this office. So now be faithful with the calling that God has given you. And we operate very much the same way in the life of our church. Uh, so I'll, I'll reference Ian again. I had him read scripture this morning for this very moment. So I could say, oh, Ian, you saw him earlier. So Ian is our deacon of community. And uh, as we said in the South, bless his heart, he has the least defined job description of any of our deacons, right? It's not like, all right, you're over our Oaks Kids ministry. It's like, you know, we believe that as our church grows, it can be difficult to feel disconnected. And we want to create meaningful relationships in the margins of life. So can you orchestrate that, right? That's kind of a big task. Uh, and yet, you know, Ian, Ian just kind of naturally does this. He creates opportunities where there's meals at people's houses or there's a day trip to Red River Gorge or people are playing pickleball together after church or something like this. And, and what that does as deacons serve in these ways is they officially model what takes place unofficially just in the life of everybody in our church. And so as we have people that are serving in, you know, specific roles, be it Oaks kids, and they're saying, hey, this is kind of how we disciple our children in the classroom back there. What that does is then families take that home and they begin to read those Bible stories and ask similar questions right before bed whenever they pray with their children. Uh, whenever we, you know, have a serve event where we're praying for people and, you know, it's like, this is on the calendar, uh, our, our deacons of benevolence maybe helped us put together, then it helps us as church members to say, you know what, that wasn't as scary as I thought it was going to be. And, and so next time, if, if I'm a medical professional and I walk into the office or, or walk in and see my patient and, and I ask, hey, you know, would you mind if I pray for you? I feel a little bit more bold to do that. And, and so what is modeled in official ways in the life of our church uh, then becomes things that are replicated through the life of everyday believers in a million different unofficial ways. As we've looked at this particular motivation, we've seen that serving solves problems. It, it, it protects the church but the fact that serving solves problems is just as true in the other context you find yourself throughout the week. You'll find that this same principle applies to every aspect of your life. Serving your husband or your wife will foster unity in your marriage as you seek to love them with an unconditional love that you have first received from Christ your Lord. If there is a big problem at work what is your first response? There's a conflict, there's a deadline. Are you going to seek to be the hero or are you going to seek to be the servant? You see, by doing this, you are like Christ. Philippians 2, 7 says that Christ took the form of a servant by taking on flesh. We are most like Christ whenever we minister to others. Uh, 
which leads us to our second motivation for serving. Serving is about who you are, not just what you do. All right, I, th- I think it's easy for us to say, okay, I want to bring a meal to the family uh, that just had a newborn, which is really helpful. Uh, or to say, hey, this person you know, has a child that's struggling with you know, algebra, and I, I want to, you know, I, I studied math in college, I, I really want to help tutor them. Th- those are good things. And yet we also see that, that serving is a matter of the heart, that serving is about who you are, not just what you do. And whenever we talked about the office of elder a couple weeks ago, I said that the primary difference between an elder and an everyday church member is a matter of calling, not character. And the same thing is true here. I'm going to ask that you look at 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, but let me give you a little bit of context. Paul is writing to Timothy. This is near the end of Paul's life. And he's writing to Timothy as he is doing ministry in Ephesus. Well, the letter of 1 Timothy was written perhaps two to four years after the book of Ephesians. And I'm not going to give you the entire chart, but just know that it's in my notes if you want to see it in the weekly email. There, I, I put together a chart that shows that every single characteristic that is required of a deacon in 1 Timothy 3 is also commanded for the Christian in the book of Ephesians. Right? So, so there's great continuity here. Now, Paul or Luke, whenever he wrote in Acts 6, gave a couple descriptors of how a deacon should be. They should be full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. Uh, and whenever Paul wrote to Timothy, he gets a little bit more specific about these characteristics. So 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13 says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, these characteristics that each deacon is called to, ultimately every church member is called to, These characteristics are only possible because this person has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. They've become a new creation. We're not just heaping up rules and standards to try to meet. These are fruits of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and living these things out. And so we'll just kind of look at them step by step here. Deacons likewise must be dignified. That's a positive trait that is fleshed out by the three negative traits that follow it. They shouldn't be double-tongued. Now, why is that important, that they shouldn't be double-tongued? Because if you are a deacon, and this is true even if you're not serving in the role of deacon, if you're coming along someone and caring for them, then there's a good chance you're going to know the sin they're struggling with. You're going to know their greatest fears. You're going to know some of the most personal information that they have ever shared with someone. And so it is very important that a part of your serving them is what you choose not to say and what you say to them. You don't gossip about them, even if it's in the form of a prayer request, right? Oh, man, you really need to pray for this person. I was talking to him yesterday. No, the person who serves is not double-tongued. They're also not addicted to wine. Now, this is true about being enslaved to anything, right? Because serving one another is difficult if you are enslaved to sin because you're going to be wrapped up in, in some other idol, that ultimately you're chasing for your own gain or pleasure. You're not going to have a a heart that is set on Christ and prone to serve one another. Third, we read that a deacon should not be greedy. Now, this is very practical because uh, typically a deacon in the context of Ephesus there would, would have access to the funds of the church. And so they wouldn't be able to be trusted if they were greedy. But the principle we pull from this for each of us who seek to serve one another is that serving means sacrificing. You've got to sacrifice your time if you're going to pick someone up who needs a ride to church on a Sunday morning. 
Uh, you're going to have to sacrifice your treasure, your finances, if you want to begin having people over to sit around your table because that means your grocery bill is going to go up. You're going to have to sacrifice. You can't be greedy if you're going to use your talents, your skills to serve the church or the world that doesn't know Christ around you. And so a servant ultimately cannot be a greedy person. They must be sacrificially generous. In verse 9, we're told that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And I think it would be easier for us to maybe walk away from Acts 6 and hear the apostles saying, we need to be devoted to the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. Literally, the words that are used there are deaconing the word and deaconing prayer, right? We're going to serve in this way. And then it almost sounds like, all right, but the deacons, they're, then they're in charge of, you know, the tangible things that take place. But verse 9 in 1 Timothy 3 calls the deacon to have a deep understanding of the faith. They can hold fast to this mystery. It's no longer a mystery because it has now been revealed. It was uh, kept under wraps for, uh, you know, in many ways as it, was, as it was progressively revealed and then fully revealed in Christ. They should hold fast to this mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Now, why is this so important? That as someone who served, you don't simply focus on just kind of what you need to do, but how well you know the truth of God. Well, you, you probably know this practically. How many times have you met a tangible need of someone and immediately you get an opportunity to talk about the gospel, right? So, so there's someone, you know, maybe it's a, a person who's hungry, and they, they ask for something to eat. And now you've met a physical need of theirs. And it opens this door to talk about the greatest spiritual need they have. And that's a relationship with Christ. As you meet the needs for others, then you're able to, to point them to the God who provides. There's often this relationship between serving and sharing the gospel. And so we must have a strong understanding of the gospel. Verse 10, we see that testing is a prerequisite of a deacon. Why? Because uh, a person that serves shouldn't just serve for a title or a position, but because they believe that God has called them to serve in that way. And then in verse 11, we see that uh, what we've read up to this point is just kind of a general description of deacons. Then in verse 11, I'm going to make the case that Paul is writing about female deacons. And then whenever he gets to verse 11, he's going to specify, or verse 12, rather, he's going to specify about male deacons. And so here he, he's addressed generally, he's going to speak to women, and then he's going to speak to men. Now, this brings us to a translation issue, because if you have the ESV, like I'm reading out of, uh, then whenever you get to verse 11, you read, their wives likewise must be dignified. But if you're reading out of the NIV translation, then your passage right there says, women likewise must be dignified. Well, why is that the case? Well, it's because the Greek word here is gunaikos, and it is an, an ambiguous word that can mean wives. Uh, whenever it is in the context of being in relation to a man or to a husband uh, specifically, or you can read it gunaikos and translate it as women. Now, the word there is not present in the Greek text. And so scholars are divided over this issue. I think that there is a biblical case to be made for both sides of it. Uh, but our elders and many other faithful pastors believe that this verse is best translated as women. And Paul is writing about female deacons and not deacons' wives. Now, this argument is supported by the fact that Paul's reference uh, in Romans 16.1 is to Phoebe, and he says that Phoebe was a deacon in the church. We can also make the observation that it would be interesting for Paul to have a specific verse that is devoted to what is required of a deacon's wife whenever he does not have the same kind of instruction to the elders. Nothing is demanded for an elder's wife. There's no requirements there. Um, now, some people might suggest, right, we, we talked about something similar a couple weeks ago, that it's inconsistent to have female deacons, but not female elders, right? Okay, so we believe it's okay to have females serving in the office of deacon in the church, but uh, we would say that the Bible um, would not permit 
females to be in the office of pastor or elder. Well, why is that the case? Well, the command in 1 Timothy 2.12 is that women would not exercise authority over a congregation through teaching. But a deacon is not a position of government over a church, so that is, that's no problem. There's no inconsistency inconsistency there. Now, this is not scripture, uh, but finally, church history has also proven that this has been a standard interpretation of this verse since the very beginning of the church. This isn't a new development that we're saying, oh, we need to be culturally relevant, so this is how we're going to do things now. No, as early as the 100s, uh, Pliny the Younger, Clement of Alexandria, and Origen were all writing about females that were serving in the office of deacon. Uh, Later, Um, If that's not convincing enough, John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon also practiced uh, that there would be females serving in the office of deacon. Um, Now, ultimately, this isn't an issue to divide over, but I think it's helpful for you to know why we operate the way that we do within the Oaks. Regardless of where you fall on that issue, we're told that in verse 11, deacons must be dignified, not slandered, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Then verse 12 talks about deacons, the male deacons, each being the husband of one wife, managing their households well because of the way that you serve in the home is often a good picture of how you will serve in the church. And then in verse 13, we see the outcome, that those who serve well as deacons gain a a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this is true of a deacon, but it is also true of every single person that expends themselves to serve others. Why is that? Because when you serve others faithfully, your relationship with Christ is strengthened. It says that they have confidence in their faith, in their walk with Jesus. Why is that the case? Because only an abiding love for Christ can sustain ongoing service. Serving in any capacity is often a, a task that goes unnoticed or maybe is underappreciated. So what is going to continue to motivate, to pour yourself out for the good of others? It is ultimately that you are serving not just the person in front of you, but Christ who is above you. Matt Smethurst says that the call to service is not glamorous, but it is glorious. And because this is true, we must understand that serving serves to sanctify us, to conform us to the image of Christ. The third motivation is that we serve because Christ served us. Now, with all of this talk about serving, I think that we probably need to lift the hood of our hearts for a moment and ask the question, what is the motivation of my serving? Why do I serve others? There are times that our obedience to the Lord must govern our affections, right? We do it because we trust the Lord and we're commanded to do it and we're living by faith. But we also need to kind of assess our motives in serving. In John Hanley's uh, helpful little book called Serving Without Sinking, he gives a diagram that I've returned to several different times and expresses that we often serve for the wrong reasons whenever we have a distorted view of God a distorted view of others, or a distorted view of ourselves. So I want to show you that diagram here as we walk through it. First, um, we have a distorted view of God. Sometimes we try to serve to be good enough for God. So we think, well, I have to serve. I've got to be at everything that the church does and be on every single team because then maybe I can earn God's love for me. And yet the gospel declares that while you are still dead in your sin— Christ chose to love and save you. Some people serve because they want to get something from God, right? We try to manipulate God, like, God, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I'm going on this mission trip, and I really don't want to be single anymore, or I really want this job, or I'm really hoping this will be the next career move for me, or I'll get into this school that I applied for. We try to manipulate God through our serving. That's ultimately a distorted view of service. Some people think I must serve to pay God back, right? Like I, I owe God. And, and so this is the way that I, I almost make myself worth it to God. And that, that completely overlooks the grace of God in your life. Sometimes we have a distorted view of others, right? So I must serve to impress others. 
Well, whenever we do that, we're, we're giving the glory that only God deserves to some other created being. Sometimes we think, well, I must serve to belong among others. Oh, we, we worship this sense of belonging instead of just belonging to the family that God has placed us in and serving them faithfully. Sometimes we have a distorted view of self. So we say, I must serve because Jesus needs me. All right, look how gifted I am. Man, if I, if I was no longer a part of this, then this whole thing would just fall apart. I, I have to do this. We overestimate our own importance. And finally, we think, I must serve because I don't need Jesus, right? You're no longer abiding in Christ. You're just the person who's gonna get things done so that, so that you really don't have to depend upon the Lord at all. It's the lie that we are self-sufficient. Now, the problem with each of these distortions is that they ultimately, regardless of whichever one you might gravitate toward, the focus is on ourselves and not on the Lord. This is where John Henley says that Christians must see themselves not first and foremost as servants, but as the ones who are served. Mark 10, 42 through 45, as Ian read earlier, says this, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now consider verse 45 for a moment. The Son of Man is the one who comes to serve. Where do we first see that title, the Son of Man? Well, it is lifted from Daniel 7. Ezekiel talks about it, Daniel talks about it to refer to the messianic king. We see that the son of man is no ordinary man. He is the second person of the eternal triune God. Daniel's vision depicts him, this son of man, as the one to whom belongs all authority, the one to whom belongs all glory and sovereign power that cannot be measured. All peoples, nations, and the articulation of every language constantly worships around his throne to exalt his everlasting dominion. His kingdom cannot be bound and his reign has no end. And so whenever Jesus assumes the title, son of man, he is rightly identifying himself as this glorious everlasting king. Now let me ask, what would you expect a person of such notoriety to act like? What would you expect their posture, posture to be among mere mortals? We roll out the red carpet for celebrities, for CEOs, they get priority boarding for first class seats. Presidents are escorted from place to place with an armed motorcade. What would you expect from the king of the universe? Would he distance himself or look down upon us? No, just the opposite. He came like us to draw near to us. He is superior in every way. Don't get me wrong. He is superior in every way, but took on the form of a servant and he serves us to save us. We read in verse 45 that the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And this is shocking and unexpected that Christ's personal mission statement is to serve the undeserving like you and I. And how does he serve? By giving his life as a ransom for many. In this passage, we see that the greatest act of Christ's service is the giving of himself, that he gave his own life as a ransom. This word ransom carries with it the concept that we were captive to sin, that we needed to be set free. And this was a freedom that we could not purchase for ourselves because our sin had placed us in debt to a holy God and no righteous work of our own could never pay that debt to free us from sin's penalty. We were headed on a path straight to hell and yet God intervened by sending his own son to come to take the form of a servant, to live the life that we couldn't have lived and on the cross to die the death that we should have died to pay for our sins in our place. We celebrate not only that he came to save us by serving us on the cross, but that he is now resurrected, that he is reigning on high and lives still to intercede on our behalf, to apply the reality of his death and resurrection and to return again 
that we would be with him in his presence forevermore. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. The question is, are you a part of the many that has received this great reality that Christ has paid for our sin in full and reconciled us to God the Father? You see, our service to God isn't an obligation. It's not some disconnected duty. It's not something that we just have to do. No, whenever we recognize the love of Christ to us by serving us, we then desire to serve others and to serve him. Seeing the love of Christ makes it easy to obey the command of Christ. Yesterday, I officiated the wedding of two of our church members. Many of you were there for it. And there is a command that I give toward the end of the ceremony. The vows have been said, the rings have been exchanged. And then I look at the groom and say, you may now kiss your bride, right? And there is, there is no command that that guy has ever received that he is more excited to obey. I, I say those words and there's never like a sigh, like, all right, if I have to. There's never, there's never a reluctance to obey. And why is that? because there is a genuine joy-filled love that finds its expression in that embrace. And for those who have been saved by Christ, we hear the words, you may now serve your savior. You're gifted to do it, you're called to do it, you're redeemed to do it, you're picked up from the pit, transferred to the domain of Christ, your good King, to follow him all the days of your life. You may now serve your King. The fourth motivation is that saved people serve people. Saved people serve people. Serve with your time, your treasures, your talents, whatever God has entrusted to you, you then leverage to serve others. I'll read these words as a charge to you and then we'll pray and we'll be done. Peter says that each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything, in everything that you do, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.